So, so good. So, so good. Yep, 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 yep. Alpha, alpha, alpha. And if you've never done it before, please uh, try it out. If you have done it before, um, once you uh, have gone alpha, it's hard to go back, you know? <laughs> and you know what God can use it for in, in winning people to himself. So, guys and gals, it is good to see you today. And um, today, um, again, what we're doing is we're not only celebrating the heat here in Chicago. Come on now, anybody excited about the heat? All right. I don't even like the heat. That's why I'm here in Chicago. But I, but I need a little break, okay? And I'm excited about sweating or a little bit, sweating to the oldies. And so with that, um, with that in mind, what we're doing is we are actually getting into, uh, over the past several weeks, our series, which is called the Exodus Chronicles. The Exodus Chronicles, where we're actually finding out how that familiar story of how God used Moses to lead the Israelites out of their bondage to slavery in Egypt into the promised land of modern day Israel actually applies to our lives today. Because all of the Bible is useful to us today, right? It's not just a relic. It is not just an ancient text that's out of date or is no longer um, um, pertinent to our lives, but God uses it to speak to us to first reveal to, who, to us who he is and then show us how to walk with him in the same love that he's had towards us. And so with that in mind, we are on part four today. And today what we're doing is, as Pastor Cole talked a little bit about how the Israelites were meeting God in the midst of the judgments last week, we're going to dive a little bit more into that today and we're going to cover the swath of the judgments, okay, and see how they actually apply to our lives today, the lessons that we can learn from it, and how we can walk with God because of it. So our focus today, if you're taking notes, is this. God places his finger on everything not submitted to him to bring you into a life that is truly new in Christ. How many people can say amen to that? <laughs> okay, God puts his finger on everything not just part of our lives, but every part of our lives that is not truly submitted to him so that he might bring us into a life that's truly new. And how about this free in Christ, new and free in Christ, because he's always working that process of bringing us out of bondage and into life. So today, if you're going to take notes, we're going to break the message down into three parts. We're going to talk about what we think we need. Secondly, what we really need. And then finally, who we really need, what we think we need, what we truly need, and who we really need. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word to us today, and we thank you that you've given it to us to provide freedom in our lives. And God, we're asking you that even as we study this ancient text of how you met with the Israelites to bring them out of their physical bondage into um, a freedom that there is in the promised land of Christ, Father, we're asking you that you would do the same for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so first, let's talk about <clears throat> what we think that we need. What we think that we need is that which we think will make us happy. What we think we need is that which we think will make us happy, but oftentimes enslaves us. How many people would say yes and amen to that? Okay, whether it be a certain amount of income, whether it be that spouse that you've always dreamed of, whether it be a certain waistline, 
Come on now, it's summertime, right? <laughs> and then you say, listen, I think that will make me happy. If I could just get it and maintain it, finally I'll be free. But the very things that we think will make us happy often enslave us. And what we must do is understand how God pushes back on that type of thinking. How God pushes back on the type of thinking that actually think, makes us think that if we obtain a certain thing, if we obtain a certain person, if we obtain a certain income level, or even a type of lifestyle, it will actually make us free, but in fact, actually enslaves us. And what we must allow God to develop is our theology of judgment to understand why I can't just live to get what I want. God resists me living just to get what I want all the time. And in fact, is trying to liberate me by telling me that I need to live to get what he wants for my life. What he wants for my life and not just what I want for my life. And that's what's actually going to set me free. So let's start in Exodus today. Exodus chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. It says, but I know, this is God talking to Moses. He says, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. And we're always looking at the Israelites in our personal relationship with God, saying that God has called me to be his child, and therefore I'm in the place of the Israelites, and he's coming to set me free. And we ignore a lot of times Pharaoh, who was judged in resisting God, and really missed the lessons that Pharaoh should have learned that should also instruct us. That should also instruct us. And God said to Pharaoh, I'm, I'm going to have to do something to have you let the Israelites go. And how many people know that sometimes God's got to allow something in our lives to actually allow us to let the things that are idols in our lives go? He's got to allow something to let the hand that we have so tightly clenched to the things that are other than him in our lives go so that we might actually be free. And this is what he was saying here. I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. So here's the point. Someone's going to be the, on the throne in your life. Someone's going to be on the throne in your life. Either the benevolent Jesus or a harsh taskmaster who you thought could make, get, you could make peace with but has actually enslaved you. Many times we remain in a place of sin and slavery as long as we are getting some measure of what we think we want. As long as we're getting a little piece of it, a little taste of it, I'll play with the sin in my life. I'll play with the compromise in my life. I'll play with the things that are actually enslaving me and killing me because, you know, a little slavery and a little bit getting what I want, I can deal with that. But there was a man named William Nicholson who actually produced a um, movie called Shadowlands. Has anybody ever heard of the um, movie Shadowlands, right? Talking about the life of C.S. Lewis. And I love how he quoted C.S. Lewis in that movie. He said, to put it another way, pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Why must it be pain? Why can't he rouse us more gently with violins or laughter? Because the dream from which we must be wakened is the dream that all is well. The thing that he has to wake us up from is the deception that by trying to live in both worlds, all is actually well. And he says, I'm trying to wake you and rouse you from that by allowing a little pain in your life. So in biblical numerology, we look at judgments, but we look at the judgments, there were 10 of them in the plagues that came against Israel, right? There were 10 that came in, 
against the plagues in Israel. And in biblical numerology, 10 is the number of completion, right? You can think of the Ten Commandments, where God was trying to instruct the Israelites about all the different areas of their life and having a complete instruction for them to lead and guide them. And with the ten plagues, Yahweh, who was the Hebrew God of Israel, was showing his complete judgment on any God that would try to act as a substitute for him in our lives. Why ten plagues? It's because there was a complete work to be done to say, these gods that the Egyptians are serving right now as a substitute to me, I'm going to judge each and every one of them. I'm not going to let one of them go untouched. So that you might know that there is no substitute that will be better than me in your life. And if you're actually a history buff, you, you can see this list. We're not going to go through the list of the Egyptian gods. I'll just mention them. But there were ten Egyptian gods being judged by the ten plagues. Do we have that list up there? It basically started with Happy, the, not Happy, like Happy the Dwarf. But like, okay, yeah. Okay, Happy, the Egyptian god of the Nile. And you remember that the first plague was turning the water into blood, right? The second was Heket, the goddess of fertility, water, and renewal. Talking about the second plague of the frogs coming out of the water. The next was Ged, the Egyptian god of the earth. And we know that there were gnats that came from the earth, from the dust of the earth and covered the land in judgment. The fourth was Kepri, god of creation, movement of the sun and rebirth. And God allowed there to be swarms of flies, right, that covered the earth in judgment. There was Hathor, the goddess of love and protection. When there was death of cattle and livestock, God was striking against that God. There was Isis. I mean, many of you have heard of Isis before, right? There was Isis, the goddess of medicine and peace. And God allowed there to be ashes turned to boils and sores on the people to say, that's not God, I am. Nut. That's right, the nut. You're a nut if you serve him. Okay, it was the goddess of the sky. Hail rained down as fire. Seth, the god of storms and disorder. Allowed, god allowed locusts sent from the sky to judge that. There was number nine, Ra, the sun god. Many of you have heard of Ra before. And in the ninth plague, there were, what? There was complete darkness. Darkness over the land so that nobody could even see what was in front of them. God was striking at that god saying, I'm in charge, not Ra. And then finally, there was Pharaoh himself. There was Pharaoh himself, as Pastor Cole talked about last week, who was considered a god, but he was ultimately the ultimate power of Egypt, and God struck him by striking the firstborn son. So in each of these ways, you see that God was saying, I'm doing a complete work to show you that no god, no thing, can stand before me, above me, or before me in your life. All the things that you would otherwise look to, they're going to fail you. But I, in my strength, I, in my power, have the ability not only to protect you, not only to provide for you, not only to make you whole, but actually bring you into the life that I created you for, which is where you'll find the only satisfaction in your life. That's why in Exodus 8, 6 through 7, it says, So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land. We see that God was striking the land, but then for a period of time, the magicians who were in the land were able to reproduce some similar things. And what we do is in our relationship with God, because we're in the world, but not supposed to be of it, sometimes we get tricked into thinking that the things that replicate that which God can somehow do 
can be a replacement for God in our lives and we don't have to give him our all. And we ignore the immediacy or the urgency of the need to repent because the world produces counterfeit solutions to our problems until they don't. Until they don't. How many people know that the world's solutions eventually run out? And then ultimately God's like, I'm the only course of action here that's going to help people and set them free. I'm going to tell you that things like government programs, self-help books, and how about this, even dating apps, can all be helpful. Everybody say amen to that. They can be helpful, but have their limits. And when we get a bit of respite from our nagging, gnawing desires in temporary outlets, we, like Pharaoh, return to the hardness of heart to govern our own lives rather than allowing God to do so. How many people have ever been there before? I got a little respite, I got a little help, and therefore I'm going right back to the thing that I was doing prior to the pain that I experienced. And we know that things don't quite smell right, right? Because even after God allowed the frogs to die in the land, the land began to stink. God gave them respite, but there were a bunch of dead frogs around and the land stunk. And we know that things stink, they don't quite smell right, but we put up with the substitutes for God's goodness because it's that to which we've become accustomed. We've become more accustomed to the substitutes than God's goodness that can actually set us completely free. And God's message to us through the Exodus is stop settling for the substitutes. Stop settling for the substitutes. Counterfeits ultimately disappoint in the end because unlike God, they don't care about you. How many people know that's true? How many people listen to Taylor Swift? Okay. There was a song back in the day that she did with Tim McGraw. Anybody remember that song? The highway don't hold you tonight. Right? Yes, I listen to her too. The highway won't hold you tonight. The highway don't care if you're coming home. But I do. Right? That's what Tim was singing. And the thing is, your idols don't care whether you make it or not. The idols don't care if you're ultimately whole or not. But God does. God cares. And that's why he's trying to set you free. They don't care about you. They cannot hear your cries. And they cannot answer your need for deliverance. But God can. And that's why he says, I'm going to judge any substitute to bring you ultimately to myself. Exodus 8, verses 18 and 19, it said the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce the gnats when we get to the plague of the gnats, but they could not. Ultimately, their ability to replicate or to provide a substitute for what God was doing ran out. So there were gnats on man and beast, and then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This is the finger of God. I've reached my limit. I can't go any further. This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord said. And the problem was not that Pharaoh didn't see that he ran out of solutions, but that he thought his solutions were found only in temporary slash momentary changes or repentance. And how many people have ever been there before? If I just do it for a little while, eventually I can go back to doing what I wanted to do anyway. Anybody ever, ever felt that way before? I'll just give God a little peace offering, right? I'll be pure for a little while until the person that I really want to be with is here. 
And then, listen, covenant really doesn't matter because, you know, I'm going to be, I, I plan on being with them. So why not do the things with them that I'm going to do one day anyway when that rings on the finger? I can listen to Beyonce, right? <laughs> right? Exodus 8, 25, it says, Then Pharaoh called Moses and said to Aaron and Moses, Go sacrifice to the Lord your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go a three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will, tell, I will let you go sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. See, what we're doing is we're stretching out this narrative so you can see this is the dynamic of your life in God. This is the dynamic. And if you look in your heart of hearts and how you interact with God, I know this is true about me. Anybody, am I alone in this? What we see is that idols deceptively perpetuate and simply relocate your bondage from one place to another, often through your internal dialogue and negotiation. Anybody ever been there before? Negotiating with yourself, giving in an eternal dialogue with yourself. Why? You know, God may have said to go a three days journey out, but I'll just go one day out. God might have said to give him my first and best and everything, but I'll just do that once a week, and that should be good. That should set me. God should get, tell me to give my first 10% so I could actually know that he's my provision and not my job, but you know what? I'll just give some offerings. And matter of fact, if a dude asks me on the street, I'll give him a granola bar, and that'll be good. Right? All of these negotiations in your heart and your mind, protecting the idols that we have in our hearts. And this is why... Timothy Keller in Counterfeit God said, an idolatrous attachment can lead you to break any promise, rationalize any indiscretion, or betray any other allegiance in order to hold on to it. It may drive you to violate all good and proper boundaries, but ultimately in the end to practice idolatry is to be a slave. And God brings his judgments out of his mercy and kindness so that we will no longer long for that which is enslaving and killing us. That's the point. He allows pushback in our lives. He allows, how about this, things to go wrong. Let me put it plainly. Anybody ever been there before? Things just start to unravel and go wrong, and you're like, why, God, why? And he's like, I told you why. Because you're serving these things above, before, and in front of me. And it's my mercy judging those things so that you might come into proper alignment and actually truly be free. This is what he was doing not only for the Israelites but for Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And we see this in the seventh plague, the destructive hail coming upon the land. Exodus 9 verses 20 through 21, it says, Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. You see that? It wasn't just the Israelites starting to wake up and say, hey, listen, I need to get with God and do what's right. It was the Egyptians too. God was having mercy on the Egyptians, and he was saying, hey, guys, if you wake up, you could go to safety too. Isn't that good news? That's the good news of the gospel. Our friends, our family members, our co-workers, they can come out of the death into life just like we do when they wake up and say, wait a minute. I don't have to experience that judgment just like they do. I'm out. They took them into the house 
so that the livestock were in the house with them, but whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. So again, affliction can act as a merciful and loving wake-up call in our lives to help us clearly distinguish what is right and wrong, what is of God, and that which is not. Psalm 119, verse 67 says this, and this has actually become a hallmark scripture for me. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I obey your word. Am I ever been there before? Listen, I was a ragamuffin kid. My mom is here today, right? And I, listen, I had discipline upon discipline after discipline. Because if I did not have that discipline, I would not be probably with you at all today. <laughs> Anybody else like me growing up? I was a wild child, right? And now my energy is just being turned to God because I woke up. But the thing about it is, is that I thank God that I had parents who disciplined me. Can anybody say amen to that? They didn't abuse me, though it felt like it at times. I was like, why? You know, God, why am I getting things taken away from me? Why? You know what I mean? Do I have to fear coming home and giving another report that my, parent, like my school teacher threw me out of the classroom? Why? Can I get some good understanding? I'm in process. <laughs> and I thank God that my parents stood against that foolishness and afflicted my soul, afflicted my body, <laughs> so that I would no longer go astray. God does the same thing as an even better parent. We need to invite objective godly counsel into our lives to allow us to see clearly what the deception of our sin and circumstances will not. Pharaoh thought that because he was the high ruler of the known world at the time, there would be no recompense for his pride, self-centeredness, and rebellion against Yahweh, the Hebrew God of all creation. But like Pharaoh, we often think that because we don't ex immediately experience the consequences of our disobedience, that there will not be a day of reckoning. Isn't that true? If we don't experience it immediately, we begin to think it's not coming. And that's what Pharaoh thought, right? I can keep putting this off because eventually I'm going to get some relief. But what he realized is that there was a day coming and that reckoning was coming. And just as God called to account the way that Pharaoh treated his people, so God will also call to account how we have stewarded what is ultimately his our time, our treasure, and our talent. He said, it's not yours, it's mine. Do with it what I say and live. He says, we live if, as if our lives are our own, but the scripture makes it clear that when we belong to Christ, that's turned on its head, is it not? Corinthians says this. Corinthians says this. Or do you not know that your body, okay? I'll let that one sit because of the times in which we live? Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are what? Not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We still happy? I didn't think so. Okay. 
What we really need, though, what we really need is the life and freedom that can be provided by God alone. God makes a distinction between his people who trust and obey him with the world who fends for themselves to show what we really need. What we need to do is stop settling for substitutes and focus on the genuine article. Focus on the genuine article who is God. This includes that what Jesus modeled in every area of our lives. And what you see God talking about was the land of Goshen. When you continue to read the Exodus story, you see him talking about the land of Goshen. Anybody ever heard of Goshen before? Maybe you passed through a land that was called Goshen. What was Goshen? Exodus 9.4 says, But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of, e uh, of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people, um, people of Israel shall die. When you see the people of God prospering as a result of obedience... As a result of obedience, whether it be in their marriages, their child rearing, their finances, their state of mind, what you have is the ability to see that God wants to bless his people. And if I obey God, God can actually bless me in kind. The land of Goshen actually represented that. God said the judgment that was coming on the other people wasn't necessarily coming on the Israelites as well. But what we see again is that Timothy Keller says if idols had give us a sense of being in control and we can locate them by locating or looking at our nightmares. What do we fear the most? If we lost it, would make life not worth living in our minds. We make sacrifices to appease and please our gods who we believe can protect us. But ultimately, that won't be the case. Ultimately, our idols cannot protect us. Only God can. Only God can. And it's not just that Pharaoh in his struggle to hold on to everything that he controlled and held dear didn't know that he was sinning, but he convinced himself that if he just held out, if he just fought hard enough, ignored the judgments and held on, he would eventually have his way. Exodus 9, 25 through 27 says, The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke literally broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to him, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. What is the lesson that we need to learn from this? The strong appeal is this. Don't wait until it's too late to actually repent and turn to the Lord. Don't wait until it's too late to actually repent and turn to the Lord. God is always saying, listen, you are on my timetable. I am not on yours. And most people think if I just push off this dealings that I have with God, eventually ignoring it enough Eventually, it won't affect me. 
But God says, I'm going to continue to press until what I need to deal with in you is dealt with. And Pharaoh's mistake is that he continued to relent as long as he got a small piece of respite. And here's the mercy of God. Do not mistake the mercy of God for the pleasure of God. When God in his mercy is letting up a little bit, that does not mean he's no longer concerned about that which he was previously talking to you about. And that's what Pharaoh thought, right? When the frogs died out, he was like, okay, I'm going to go right back to what I was doing. When the gnats died out, he said, okay, I'm going to go right back to what I was doing. Whenever there was respite for Pharaoh, he went right back to the way he was living until the death of the firstborn. Until it was too late. That literally God struck the thing that affected or represented his hopes for the future. His hopes for what he thought he could hold on to and maintain. And the question is, what is it going to take? What is it going to take for God to bring you into a place of healing? Because that's ultimately what he wants to do. Bring you to his throne, bring you to his feet, bring you into a place of healing. I don't know if you like Avengers like I do. But I'm excited about Love and Thunder coming out. And the thing about Love and Thunder, I love the whole Marvel narrative, is because in the Asgardian world, though the people of Earth called them gods, they weren't really gods. They were just from another place. Just had a little few more abilities than the humans on Earth, right? And what I love in the Avengers series is that eventually Thor woke up and realized he wasn't a god. And we see him after Endgame, after not taking out Thanos like he wanted to, looking a little bit like this. Anybody remember Brothor? And what Brothor was doing in this moment is yelling at some kid online playing Fortnite. He'd been so broken in spirit that this great god of thunder was sort of like, this is the god of thunder, and if you one more time, you remember that scene? I was like, Thor, what happened? But in Love and Thunder, we see something happening. I only saw the preview, but I saw a picture. Look at it. Thor. Thor. Yes. Thor was doing some work. Thor was on some like multi-ton chains doing some work saying, I'm not just going to be yelling at the kids at Fortnite anymore. I can actually get my healing. I can actually be the man. Maybe not king of Asgard. That's gone. But I'm not going to be king of my own life. I'm going to at least get back into a place of productivity in my life. I'm going to do what it takes to change. You see him with those. Anybody ever used those in the gym before? Not actually those metal things. You know, but at least the ropes. It can be tough, right? I'm going to do something. You feel like you're doing something. Even if you only do it once a month. You're like, yeah. Something happening. Change. Right? Thor was finally willing to do what it took to change. And ultimately, that's what happens when we see not just what we need, but who we really need. The death of the firstborn ultimately pointed to the person of Jesus, the Son of God. And God ultimately strikes the firstborn to show who we ultimately need for the salvation in our present and future. 
He says, find real life in Christ. In the book, Mere Christianity, published in 1952, but adapted from a series of talks Lewis gave during World War II, C.S. Lewis discusses the influences of Satan and God have on humankind. He said, what Satan put in the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be like gods. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empire, slavery. The long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. The reason why it can never succeed is this. God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. And he says the only way it's going to work properly is if you come to me and allow me to form you and shape you in the manner in which I created you. In every aspect of your life. The solution to this endless search was that God sent his only son to reconcile us to God in Christ. Where we were unaware of who God was, God sent his son to reconcile us to him in Christ. In Egyptian culture, posterity held your hopes for the future, and the firstborn sons were the first sign of your strength. And just as God struck down in judgment the false hopes and dreams of a people that would attempt to live fulfilled without him, so God himself sacrificed his only son at the cross for the very same people who, if they would but turn to him in repentance and faith, might find the life that is truly life. There would be redemption when God gave his firstborn son, Jesus Christ, in sacrifice for the life of the world. And every provision that you need for life and worship of God will ultimately, ultimately be provided for you as you follow him in faith. In faith. But I want to give one last little excerpt. C.S. Lewis, I think, did such a good job talking about this in The Problem of Pain. Anybody ever read that book before? Mm -hmm. The Problem of Pain? And this is the cycle of our life from which God is trying to free us. Am I with me? He said, my own experience was something like this. I'm progressing along the path of life in my ordinary, contentedly fallen and godless condition. Absorbed in a merry meeting with my friends for the morrow. Or a bit of work that tickles my vanity today. A holiday which is what the Europeans say is vacation. Okay, I translate <laughs> A holiday or a new book. When suddenly a stab of abdominal pain that threatens serious disease or a headline in the newspapers that threatens us all with destruction sends this whole pack of cards tumbling down. At first I'm overwhelmed and all my little happinesses look like broken toys. Then, slowly and reluctantly, bit by bit, I try to bring myself into the frame of mind that I should have been in at all times. I remind myself that all these toys were never intended to possess my heart, that my true good is in another world, and my only real treasure is Christ. And perhaps, by God's grace, I succeed and for a day or two become a creature consciously dependent on God and drawing its strength from the right sources. But the moment the threat is withdrawn, my whole nature leaps back to the toys. Thus the terrible necessity of tribulation is only too clear. 
God has made me for but 48 hours. Um, I'm sorry, God has had me for but 48 hours and then only by dint of taking everything away from me. Let him but sheathe that sword for a moment and I behave like a puppy when the hated bath is over. I shake myself as dry as I can and race off to reacquire my comfortable dirtiness. If not in the nearest manure heap, because that would be too much, <laughs> at least in the nearest flower bed. And that is why tribulations cannot cease until God either sees us remade or sees that our remaking is now hopeless. Does that make sense to everybody? And so the point of the gospel is this. He says, come to me that I might remake you. Come to me that I might make you new. Come to me that all that you possessed, all that you counted yourself as previously might be placed at the feet of the cross and I might actually make you new to free you. That's why in the gospel, again, Paul said this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are actually not just giving a part of their lives, but they've given up everything in their new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. You see, that's what God wants to do. He wants to get rid of the old that bound you and bring you into the new that will ultimately free you, not just temporarily through substitutes, but eternally in him. Through the cross of Christ, through his ultimate resurrection from the dead. But just like Christ, we must first die to self that we might actually live for him now and forever, in Jesus' name. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Father, I thank you so much for your goodness towards us today. And God, I thank you that you mercifully, in moments like these, allow not only your word, but your Holy Spirit to search our hearts. And God, it is so easy, it is so easy to allow Father, the idols that we have in this world, the idols that we have in this world to mark and define our thinking, to mark and define our living, to mark and define our ambitions, our hopes, and our dreams. But God, we see and can clearly see in moments of lucidity and clarity that they ultimately look to enslave us. And God, we're asking you that today you would set us free. You would set us free and, number one, allow us to have the mind of Christ through your word. Secondly, that you would allow us to let be judged anything that keeps us from giving our all to you. Whatever idols we've been holding on to, God, would you, by your grace, allow us to loosen our grip on them. That, God, we might be remade ultimately in you. God, we trust you for life and goodness, that ultimately you are the source. And we know that though it can be hard, that God, you are there to help us and bring us even in times of trial into the land of Goshen, where though the judgments might fall all around us, Father, we're free and protected, provided for in you. 
not only now, but eternally. And I want to pray for anybody in here who says, you know what? Just keep your focus on God right now. You say, God Almighty, I, I've heard your word and I, I've given part of my heart to you, but I know there are things that I still cling to in my heart and my mind. That I say, I've got a better plan, better ideas, or a better way than you. But I see that ultimately I'm heading for that brick wall of reality, and I, I, need, I need your help to be set free by you. If that's you in here, would you, would you lift your hand? I want to I pray for you that God himself might come in and be that help to you. Anyone else? Good. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters, and I pray that the work that you've started in them would be a complete work. That you would bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That you would hold them, that you would keep them, that you would enable them to live in wholehearted devotion to you. God, you said that the Israelites were to go a three days journey out because even when the when they tried to offer those sacrifices, it would stink and be a reprehensible thing to the Egyptians if they tried to stay in the land. God, I pray that you give them faith to worship fully and freely, holding nothing back, even if it comes with the reproach of the world. God, I pray that you give them courage to do so, keeping their eyes on you, Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith, and also you, Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. God, I pray that you would teach us how to long for, thirst for, and hunger for the life that is truly life. Not a substitute, God. Not a substitute, God. But the life that is truly life found only in you. And God, we pray that you would help us not just to yearn for that, but to find it as we seek your face day by day. In Jesus' name. Amen. And one last thing. Is there anybody at all, if there is anybody at all, who says, I've never completely given my heart to Jesus, but I know I need to be made a new creation today. I don't want hell. I don't want death and destruction. I want to repent of my sin and turn to the living God today. After the service, there'll be people over here to stand with you in prayer that we might cry out to God and he might make you supernaturally new. In Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. All right, let's rise and worship the King of Kings.